Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. While you're doing that, let me uh, add on to something that Brad told us this morning, that VBS registration going on the foyer, uh, particularly important today and particularly for some volunteers. In fact, we're at a risk of you know, having to cancel that experience of fellowship and God's Word this summer at our church, and that would be a shame. And I know that there are a dozen, there are 20 of you out there that would love to help out the week of July 6th. Sometimes maybe we don't sign up because we figure, well, everybody else is doing it, but there's a real a special need for it this year. We need a game director, we need four Bible teachers, we need an activity coordinator, and then just some adult leaders, too, that would help out during the week. So if you think that that could be you, and I know it could, please, please stop and see Kelly in the foyer on your way out today, would you please? Amen? Your Bibles are open to John chapter 21. It has already been, can you believe it? It's already been just over 40 days since Easter. Yeah, six weeks ago already, and, and that's all the time that Jesus spent with his disciples and followers after his resurrection and before his ascension. I was imagining this week that that time maybe flew by for the disciples just like it has perhaps for many of us. You may recall that during these 40 days since Easter this year, we've been looking at some of what Jesus was up to during his 40 days 2,000 years ago after rising from the dead. And so this morning... We'll look at one more story. It's the last story in the Gospel of John. We ended last time with Jesus and the disciples having a fish breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, remember? And so it's fresh off that miraculous catch of fish that Jesus addresses his disciples for the last time in the Gospel of John. Your Bibles are open to John chapter 21. I'll begin reading at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. You hear echoed here the first and second greatest commandment, love God and loving others. The third time, verse 17, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. 
Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the very Word of God. Amen? Amen. A lot has been written and taught about Jesus' reinstatement of Peter here in John 21, those repeated, do you love me, questions. So I'm only this morning going to mention in passing and focus on something else that doesn't always get the same amount of attention, but a little bit on the reinstatement of Peter. Many have commented on the fact, of course, that Jesus asks, Peter answers, and Jesus comments three times in a row in this story. That jumps out at you, doesn't it? And some find meaning in the use of two different Greek words for love in the story, agape and filio love. And perhaps they're on to something, although others point out that when Jesus spoke, he probably was speaking Aramaic and not Greek, and Aramaic doesn't carry the same distinction that Greek does with all of those Greek words for love. So it might be best to see the uses of love here interchangeably, as our English Bible translates it, simply love. But whatever your opinion on that, it seems very likely at least that Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? To counter those three times, Peter denied even knowing who Jesus was right before Jesus died. Almost as if Jesus is gently and firmly reminding Peter, there was a time, Peter, when you were equally confident that you would stand by me, and only it didn't turn out so well. And so Jesus may be saying to Peter, all right, Rocky, let's try it again. And the fact that Peter not only tried again, but this time wildly succeeded in following Jesus through thick and thin, you may be able to see a bit of why in how Peter answers these questions in chapter 21. Did you notice Peter keeps repeating You know I love you, Jesus. You know I love you. You know all things. You know I love you. says that four times. Perhaps our confident disciple number one, Brother Peter, finally gets it. He won't succeed on his own knowledge or confidence in himself, but only on the knowledge and confidence of Jesus in him. There seems to be in Peter's answer an acknowledgement of Jesus' knowledge, uh, maybe a humility here to Peter that was perhaps still in the making when Peter boldly proclaimed the first time that he would stick with Jesus no matter what. And that's a great lesson for us too this morning. Jesus' reliance instead of self-reliance, yes? Jesus' reliance and not self-reliance in our mission to turn our love for Jesus into shepherding His sheep. But in the time we've left this morning, I want to focus on what happens next with you after Peter's reinstatement. Throughout the Gospels, many have noted, oh, a sort of gentle rivalry between Peter and John. In just the previous chapter, John 20, 
John tells us about a foot race between he and Peter to the empty tomb, remember? And John tells us in that story twice that John beat Peter there. But then John says, Peter went into the tomb first. But then John says that on seeing the empty tomb, he, John, was the first to believe. I suspect something about this gentle rivalry between Peter and John is there for our benefit. I mean, why bother to tell us who got there first, who went inside first, and who believed first? In the miraculous fish story we discussed a few weeks back, Peter's clearly the leader of the disciples. Peter's the one who says, I'm going fishing, and the rest follow him out there. But then it's John who keeps describing himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's John who recognizes Jesus before Peter does. But then it's Peter who jumps into the water and gets to Jesus first. But then it's John who admirably stays back helping the others drag in the fish. But then it's Peter who drags the net the final few yards to the shore. Do you get the picture? Back and forth, it seems, between Peter and John being first or best or the exemplary example, this gentle rivalry almost. You may remember both John and Peter followed Jesus to his trial before Caiaphas, but Peter has to wait outside until John, who apparently is somehow connected, he's known to Caiaphas, gets Peter inside. And there are many instances where Peter clearly seems the, the lead disciple, perhaps the eldest. For example, Jesus very often gives Peter the first shot at a question that Jesus wants to discuss with the disciples as a whole. But then it's John who Jesus hugs at the Last Supper and who stands faithfully with Jesus' mother at the cross. Back and forth it goes. And at least once, you recall the disciples are all arguing over who's the greatest. Remember that one? And while not specific to Peter and John only, it wouldn't surprise me in the least one day to find out that Peter or John or both were in the thick of that argument. The point is that these followers of Jesus, the disciples, and here specifically Peter and John, the Bible seems bent on including for us the fact that there was this sort of rivalry, gentle rivalry among the disciples, and perhaps even more focused, especially here in John's Gospel, a gentle rivalry between Peter and John. And that's part of the context, at least, for, for Peter's question to Jesus after breakfast that morning along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus reinstates Peter, gives him the role of shepherd, and tells Peter how he's going to die, specifically that he will be crucified. That phrase in verse 18, Peter, one day you will stretch out your hands. You find it all over first century literature. It's a common phrase in the first century for death by crucifixion specifically. Now, we may have to push against an inclination that we might have here. I know I have it every time I read the story. When I read Jesus telling Peter he's going to be crucified, you know, my reaction is, whoa, bummer, you know? Terrible for Peter. And maybe at least part of Peter is indeed dismayed at the news. But don't forget, 
disciple in the first century, the whole thing since Peter's been born and been taught to, to speak and to talk and to walk and to study, one day perhaps a rabbi would choose him to be a disciple. And when a rabbi chooses a disciple, that rabbi is putting their faith in the disciple that that disciple can be just like him. And so Peter from birth wanted to so closely follow his rabbi's path. It's really considered an honor. Even, and in some ways especially, the ugly parts. And in this case, as ugly even as crucifixion. I think we get a proper sense of this in verse 19, where the narrator tells us, almost matter-of-factly, that Peter's death would glorify God, just like Jesus' death glorified God. And, and that would be great news to Peter as a disciple of Jesus, that he would literally follow in Jesus' footsteps even to the cross. But whether Peter is honored or satisfied or maybe even bummed out by Jesus' statement he would be crucified, regardless of Peter's exact state of mind here, he just can't resist asking another question, can he? And it's just like Peter, right? I mean, always inclined, it seems, to ask one question too many, which in turn, like here, gets a rather stern response from Jesus. Things like, not here, but past Peter's experience with doing this, one question too many, one statement too many. Things like, from Jesus, get behind me, Satan. And while I don't think in that story Jesus was referring to Peter personally, he was referring to the temptation that Peter's statement presented, still, if you're a disciple and you make a statement to a beloved rabbi and teacher that elicits the response get behind me, Satan, you've got to be thinking at least, wow, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> but Peter, even here, is still Peter, and he can't seem to resist. And so Jesus says, Peter, will you, you will glorify God in your death by crucifixion. Follow me. And Peter then, literally, it seems, they start walking, and as, as well as now figuratively, given Jesus' prediction, starts following after Jesus. But then Peter can't seem to resist. As he's following Jesus, he looks over his shoulder, and he sees his old gentle rival, John, plodding along after him. And John's sure to call himself there again, the disciple that Jesus loved. And Peter just can't seem to resist. He just needs to know. How will John glorify God? How's it going to compare to Peter's glorifying God? Will it be more or less glorifying than Peter? And he can't resist. He sees John following Jesus right alongside him. And he has to ask, Lord, what about him? Oh, Peter. Now, I don't know if on the heels of this question they just kept walking while Jesus answered over his shoulder or if Jesus came to a full stop to turn and face Peter. I would guess the latter, but it's only a guess. We'll ask them all someday. But whether they literally stopped or not, Jesus' answer to Peter is a full stop. The Greek here is very direct, very blunt. The NIV translates it well. Peter, what is that to you? You must follow me. 
a looser translation of that Greek idiom, which might capture at least equally well in our language today, the tone that Jesus takes here with Peter might be something like this. Peter, it's none of your business. Follow me. I'll worry about John's place in all this. You just follow me. And the last final point in all of John's remarkable gospel takes aim at resolving once and for all even this, however, gentle rivalry among the disciples, and specifically here, Peter and John. What about John, Peter? Peter, what about you? Don't you worry about John's place. You just follow me. There's a danger of rivalry and competition in the Christian church. We're often inclined, like Peter, to look over our shoulders, peek over the pews, at others following Jesus too, and tempted to wonder, hmm, what about them? And it's a dangerous temptation. One commentator bluntly states, personal competition and rivalry destroy the work of the church. And he's dead on. In the movie, Amadeus, Antonio Salieri, an old man on a suicide watch, tells us the gripping story of his life. Much has been disputed about the historicity of the movie. Did it really happen that way? Probably not. But for illustration purposes this morning, Let's take the story of the movie on its face, whether fact, fiction, or a little of both. The movie tells really, it's really the heartbreaking story of how jealousy and rivalry ruins a man who's bent on glorifying God through his work. Ruins Salieri and maybe ruins Mozart too. Antonio Salieri was a Venetian conductor and composer during the late 17 and early 1800s. That's a fact. He was the Austrian imperial Kapellmeister, answering only to the emperor for 36 years, composed over 40 operas. He is regarded today and was then as one of the most important and famous musicians of his time. And yet... He becomes consumed with jealousy and his rivalry with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. In the scene I'm about to show you, Salieri composes a song, a march, to greet Mozart as Mozart meets with the emperor for the first time. And as Salieri witnesses Mozart's talent, I know Mozart is rude to him, but it's really Mozart's talent. When Salieri witnesses Mozart's talent and starts comparing it to his own, you'll see on his face the first seeds, at least, of what jealousy and rivalry can do. You'll see them take root in this man, however bent on praising and glorifying God. Let's watch. That Salieri, as a young man, he's composing that march as a gift to Mozart. 
Grazie, signore. Gets credit to God for the inspiration. I, 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 this is a beautiful pick for you. It looks so marvelous and I love it. The other one. That's Mozart. The other one. I think you will love it. It's the third one. So, if you go, how do you like it? They're all so beautiful. Why do I have three heads? Charming idea, court composer. May I see? Just a, uh, just a trifle, of course. May I try it? Majesty. Let's have some fun. Bring in Hamotak, please. But slowly, slowly. I need a minute to practice. So, sire, yes. Show us. It doesn't really. 
really work, does it? Did you try? Shouldn't it be a bit more? Or this? This? Yes. Better? What do you think? Because of this rivalry, this comparison, this peeking over the pew that develops with Mozart, he begins to deeply resent God and God using Mozart even more. It ruins his relationship with Mozart, his fellow composer. It ruins Salieri's own sense of worth in God's kingdom, despite being an extremely gifted composer in his own right. And finally, the rivalry and resentment undermine and ruins his relationship with God. Let's watch a little more. I promise just a little. From now on, we are enemies. You and I. Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy, and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm you are a creature on earth as far as I am able. It's grown like a cancer in this man's soul, hasn't it? This jealousy. I wonder if such concerns were on Jesus' heart and mind when he told Peter that how and why and where he used John to God's glory didn't concern Peter. It's none of his business. Just follow me, Rocky. 
today the warning still holds. Wherever you or I are called to serve, our focus needs to remain on Jesus and not how and why and where God also uses others, at least in a sense of comparing it to ourself and our own walk and God's will for us. God will take care of that for the others. We're simply to follow Jesus. And when that focus strays, we risk our relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We risk our own sense of worth and our own life and witness. And we even risk our relationship with God Himself. In watching Amadeus again this past week, it, it struck me how God's church is, mu- is much like an orchestra. God's the great composer. Jesus, the conductor. The Holy Spirit, the notes on the page or the inspiration for the music. And each one of us, an instrument in the band. And if we steer clear of jealousy or rivalry of other instruments in the band, if we just keep our eye on the conductor following him, he will knit together... God will knit together our combined efforts literally, literally into the very voice of God that the world is desperate to hear. In in Amadeus, that result, metaphorically, looks something like this. On the page, it looked nothing. The beginning simple, almost comic. Just a pulse, bassoons, basset horns, like a rusty squeeze box. (laughs) And then, suddenly, high above it, an oboe. A single note hanging there, unwavering. Until a clarinet took it over. Sweetened it into a phrase of such delight. This was no composition by a performing monkey. This was a music I'd never heard. Filled with such longing, such unfulfillable longing, it seemed to me that I was hearing the voice of God. Excuse me. But why? Why would God choose an obscene child to be his instrument? It was not to be believed. This piece had to be an accident. It had to be. It better be. Many have pointed out that Peter and John were gifted in different ways. Peter, the dynamic preacher... John seemingly a little more quiet and perhaps a more gifted, abstract thinker. 
Ever notice the Bible, as far as I could find this week, doesn't record one public speech or sermon by John? Well, Peter has several. Peter perhaps more outgoing, John more introverted, this beloved disciple hugged by Jesus and given as a son to Mary, Jesus' mother. The point is they're very different, and that's okay. They each had their lives to live to God's glory in their own way. And that's okay. It's more than okay. It's crucial. Now that might seem an obvious point to be making this, this morning. But however obvious it is or it should be, it's something the church seems to struggle mightily with from time to time. Rivalry and jealousy among denominations. Among different churches in the same denomination. Rivalry and jealousy within the same small c local church among ministries. Difference of opinion on what's best. What's the best approach to ministry. Sometime falling between younger and older. And a tendency exists sometimes to try and limit or even destroy such beautiful God-given diversity rather than cherishing, nurturing, encouraging the diversity and working for unity in it. Let the elbow be an elbow, you clarinets. Kettle drums don't go banging into the tuba section trying to bang a tuba into a kettle drum. Aren't you glad they sound different? Who wants a band full of any one instrument? That gets old. It can't be used in as many a diverse and mighty way to meet sinners where they are. And oh, when they work together in harmony. truly is the voice of God. And they'll work together in harmony if they don't start resenting each other and their parts to play versus my part to play. They don't start resenting. And just follow the conductor. Only if they follow Jesus and leave the other followers ultimately up to Him. Paul Wiggs shared this story with me yesterday, and I can't resist sharing it in part because Jack Nicholas is one of my favorites all time. Nicholas was watching Tiger Woods playing golf, and someone asked Nicholas what he thought of Tiger. Now remember, Tiger is rather systematically taking down Nicholas's long list of record accomplishments one by one. It seems inevitable he'll beat them all. And yet, Nicholas responds in admiration. Nicholas said, this young man is playing a game with which I'm not familiar Wow, this from who many consider the greatest golfer to ever play the game. Are we there in the church? The church at large or in our little orchestra section here on West Bowles? If not, do you think we can get there in Christian life and ministry? Regard others who are gifted differently, who have a different approach, who have a different way of looking at things. Can we guard them or can we regard them with admiration? 
respect, and even support because they're different. Wow, look at you go, Obo! I could never do that, and I couldn't do it that way, but you sure can. Way to go! Instead of, well, I don't think that approach is the best way. You need to be more like me in what I think about it. Can we get there? We can. We can find the place where anyone and everyone contribute in their own God-given way in His orchestra, adding their voices to God's composition and music. We stop peeking over the pews, looking over our shoulders, and keep our eye on the conductor. And when we're there, when oboes gladly give way to clarinets who gladly take over in their own turn, it can be a music, it can be a witness unlike the world has ever seen, sweet and delightful. Maybe it starts out as a rusty squeeze box, and maybe that's what we look like here. But when blended together, how did Salieri put it, it becomes a phrase of such sweet delight. Maybe, hopefully, Lord willing, creating an incredible longing in people to know the composer of so great a witness of love. To know God and Jesus as their Savior too. When we allow ourselves to harmonize with others rather than trying to change them to be just like me, God will harmonize it into, yes, the very voice of God. A God who uses sinners Saved by grace. Go figure. Unbelievable. I know, but true. Nevertheless, that, that's who he wants to use. Sinners saved by grace. Like you and like me. So what about John? Hey, what about you? Jesus says, follow me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the honor and privilege and delight it is to be individual members of your great composition of life and history of the world and witness of who your Son is, to be able to sit in that orchestra. Father, would you help us to keep our eyes on the conductor, your Son, Jesus? Would you guard our hearts against jealousy, against pride? Would you give us the grace to be able to appreciate others, not despite their differences, but because of them? Give us the humility to submit to one another humbly, with kindness and gentleness, with a sincere heart to blend in and to enhance the beautiful witness that you're conducting in our lives. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Hey, church, real quick. Todd, I'm oh, coming up here. Amen. Interrupt you. I know you want to go fire up your Memorial Day uh, grilling, but it's probably raining anyway. Todd's not going to say anything, but we think it's really important that we send Todd off this week. If you don't know, uh, Todd is headed to Israel this week, and he's going yes. to be gone for a couple weeks. And uh, we as a church really believe 
you all know Todd's gifts well, but we believe in him sharing it outside of these walls as well. And Todd has played such a significant part in uh, so many people who have journeyed to the Holy Land. I didn't even realize how many times you've been there. You told me last week. What's the number? I think 23 this time. 23 times yeah. in many of those leading groups. Yeah. So it's a big deal for Todd and the group that's going with him. We want to be in prayer for, for them and also for, for the Lantings. That's a big deal uh, to have you gone for that long. So going to be gone the next two Sundays. I know we're going to hear from uh, Paul Wiggs and Brian Rickman. We're going to be doing communion next week together. So a lot coming up, but remember Todd's going to be gone. So why don't we pray for him? Father, we thank you uh, for the message this morning, God, and truly, God, that you've called us each in our own giftedness to uh, glorify you with our lives. We thank you for Todd's presence here uh, in the body. We know what a teacher he is, uh, God, and what you've laid on his heart. We thank you that his passion um, is so deep, God, to share with others um, what he experienced as he traveled your, your steps in Israel and the Holy Land. Each time he goes, God, we know um, his longing is to share your heart and lead others to your way. So um, be with him, protect him, keep this group safe as they travel. Um, give him the words that are your words, Jesus, um, that he communicates so well. And uh, be with his family as well as he's uh, gone and away and out of town. We thank you, God, and we, we celebrate you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Craig. Love you, brother. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Yeah, keep praying. Keep praying. Would you stand for God's benediction, please? His good words. This from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and God through Paul to us this morning. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. From Christ the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part, each part, does its work. In the name of Jesus the Messiah, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. We'll see you soon. VBS sign up for volunteers. Go find Kelly and bless the lives of some kids in July. Please.